I've never expected I would survive when I was there. And for me, the film was a very clear way for me to, to tell that. Mm -hmm. And everyone who watched the film can totally like understand why I was thinking or why I would think today, like, I, sh I should not be here now. What does it mean to live in exile, displaced from everything you have ever known? Starting your life from scratch in a foreign place, armed with a survival instinct and the only items you could carry with you when you left home. Three years ago, a rare and illuminating documentary for Sema showed the world the reality and heartbreak Syrians endured in deciding whether to remain in the war zone of their neighborhoods or leave towards an uncertain future. The film was nominated for an Oscar and won Best Documentary at the Emmys and BAFTAs. Its filmmaker and protagonist, Wad al-Khatib, has since traveled around the world speaking on behalf of the Syrian people, those displaced and those still left behind. I sat down with Wad at the P21 Gallery in London, where her new exhibit, We Dare to Dream, opened. That exhibit showcases ordinary household items kept by Wad and other Syrian refugees when they left their homes items that have now been imbued with new and profound meaning. Welcome to The Big Picture, a podcast about the past, the present, and the future. Today, we sit down with award-winning filmmaker and Syrian activist, Wad al-Khatib. Wad al-Khatib, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me again. It has been three years since we last spoke. The last time was following the release of your uh, groundbreaking film for summer. Uh, it has since won, won a number of awards. It has gone to a number of countries around the world. It has been seen by a large group of people. How do you feel three years later, looking back at that story and the kind of story you were hoping to tell and share with the world? So to be honest, like as time goes, I feel more like how important this film was to go out and how important for me to, to tell the story. Um, not just my personal story, but the story of Aleppo, the story of the displacement. And just being here today, looking at what is around us, which we cannot talk about soon, um, it just gives me so much uh, relief that I know that I survived. I know that we lost a lot, but we still own our narrative. We still can tell our story and... Uh, make people aware of what happened and what's still happening until now. When you were starting to work on this film, one of the things that you were told is that people were tired of hearing about Syrians and the Syrian story and that everybody had already heard and seen what they needed to see. Now, three years later, there is a wave of films that are coming out now um, there's a film that's, you know, number one on Netflix uh, that is talking about the refugee crisis. Do you feel, I mean, how do you feel about that statement now? And how do you feel about these stories that are coming out? I think I understand where the, that statement comes from. And as I'm living here more and more, I can more understand how people could be very overwhelmed mm. of what they are seeing on the news or what they feeling, overwhelmed with their own lives and the crisis around the very normal details of any individual life uh, outside. But I think also uh, what they were tired of is like the death, the bombing, um, the same kind of numbers they, they kind of hear or see, but without having any connection to these people or to these like pictures. Um, and I think what this film had like was more like 
personal connection. People can see themselves in this like story. They can understand more that we are people like them. We have lives, we have dreams, we had uh, history, we had life, and we were just trying to defend our basic rights of freedom and dignity. Um, and I think also like people, when they look about so many stories from outside, it seems like strange and cold and far away. Um, and then when you have a chance to live like even for one hour and a half, understanding everything happening in, in our minds, in our hearts, in our life, in our decisions, that's, let's make so much big difference, you know, that you can relate, you can connect. Um, and now after Ukraine and what happened, unfortunately, people has more connection now. People start to feel that this is not just about Syria. This is not just about one country in the Middle East. This is about criminals. And these criminals can commit these crimes anywhere around the world. And that's not about Syria or Ukraine. It's about our rights as a human being to be able to live our life as we want, mm -hmm. in freedom, in safety, in simple, basic, um, like, right, you know, to choose the best for our children, for, for ourselves. What was the reaction that you received from audiences, um, but also from some of the international bodies that you took the film to, to screen? What were people's impressions of the film, and what did they share with you? So to be honest, like as Wad, who lived through all of this, I had so much like anger and frustration with all these like big organizations, bodies of like um, what they call themselves, you know, like humanitarian um, organizations, especially the ones that they are like governors, you know, like they are responsible for the whole world as, as they present themselves. And part of like the displacement of Aleppo, which we call it forced displaced, like we call ourselves forced displaced people. People sometimes refer to Aleppo and what happened as evacuation. Mm. And for me, like the, the very basic symbol difference, evacuation, it looks like it's a volcano, you know, mm. it's like earthquake. Mm. While like forced displacement is like something happened as an act by someone, some power. And that was like the Syrian regime and Russia. And even this organization who um, describe themselves as like neutral organization or like, you know, they, they, they are not political at all. They, with, with their like neutrality, they kind of helping the regime and Russia to amplify their, their plans. You know, they, they are not standing with the people. They're not actually neutral. Mm. For this, like when I went out, I had so much like things I had to face, you know, to explain to people like, no, not congratulations, you, you went out of Aleppo. It was like heartbreaking for us. It wasn't something we wanted to do. Mm. And this is not like the UN or whatever body we can call it. They saved the people of Aleppo when they did this. They helped Russia to amplify their like, plan because the simple thing they have to do if they have to take responsibility was to keep us in our city, in our homes mm. and protect us, mm. you know, not take us out and displace us. So I had so much like things to do, you know, over the years just to simply like re-identify the words that people use when they talk about Aleppo and what they call it civil war, you know, mm. while there's Russia and Iran and mm. so many other countries involved. So it can't be civil war, you know, it's like you can call it war if it's fine. But for us, it was always revolution. Then, yeah, it turned into war, but it's not definitely civil war, which 
so many statements of big organization they used, you know. Mm. So, like, yeah, there's so many battles around the years. And I think the, the main thing I've seen when these people, like, have seen the film. So we showed the film in so many places around the world, um, including, like, the parliament in the UK, um, the Congress in, in, um, in, in the uh, US and the UN, uh, um, like, in different missions. Uh, and the main reaction I, th I felt like I had and clearly was something, like, they used to see this as numbers, you know, mm. as paper. Like, they've never went and spent time with people. Sometimes they do missions, but it's not really living with people. They don't understand our perspective. And I think that was the main, like, thing I felt, like, it really changed their perspective about who we are as people. Um, and I think that's what's very important. I think it's one of the things that your film captures so clearly is that idea that of the decisions that are made on people on the ground, how difficult it is for people to actually take the step in order to leave their homes and that for a large group of people, it is the last thing that they will ever try and then they will do the impossible to try and you know retain a sense of normalcy in their life up until the point where they have to leave yeah and we did the impossible you know we had no choice the choice was you leave or you will die like there was no other options you know so it's not even an option we can't call it an option and that's just now looking back at this it's been now like years you know like it's not one it's not two it's not even five years since 2016 like December, we're now 2022. Mm. So all this time, I think I can deal with everything happened in terms of trauma in my life, in everything I've seen of people being killed, kids being like literally on the edge of being in, in like alive or not, and so many things. But the one thing I can't deal with until now is the time when I heard like we're leaving mm. and the time we actually, I realized we're not there anymore. And that's, I think, there's so many crimes we've witnessed. For me, the displacement is, like, one of the biggest ones. What messages are you sending to us, to your people and to your children? What will the next conflict look like if impunity persists? It's okay to torture people. It's okay to kill children. It's okay to bomb hospitals. What sort of legacy are you leaving behind for the next generation? You spoke recently at the UN Security Council. Yeah. And you said uh, quite a powerful statement in which you said that the UN Security Council had essentially been spectator yeah. to the suffering of Syrian people. In what ways do you think the UN as a body, with the UN Security Council in particular, failed to prevent what has happened in Syria? Yeah, when we talk about the UN Security Council and one of the like, permanent members are Russia. Of course. So how can they not be spectator? You know, like, and being spectator, that doesn't mean they have nothing to do. They are allowing Russia to do what they are doing. And that's, for me, like very clear, simple-like explanation. You know? I went there, and I had so many questions in my mind before I go, and why I have to go, you know, like... There's no reason, like nothing would be changed after this, and I know this, but I decided to go there to tell the message for the Syrian people, not for the people who are sitting in that place, because I know that so many of them maybe are really good people, but they have nothing in their power. It's more about the five permanent countries who are in, in, in the Security Council, 
And even some of these countries, I know they are really good. I know they've tried so much to do this, but the system is wrong, you know? When you have to take permission from Russia to like persecute Russia, like this is not right, you know, like simply not, not, not right. So I just wanted to go to tell like the world, the Syrian people, that I'm, I was not honored to be there mm -hmm. because I was there. I was honored that I'm one of the Syrian people who stood out, who asked for dignity, for freedom, and who still think like we still can fight even if we are now outside. And what happens in these places when you go and you say a statement like that in front of a lot of foreign dignitaries, ambassadors? What do people come and tell you afterwards? And, and I mean, does it sound convincing to you? I think there are so many good people in this world, but I think the bad people has much more power. Mm. Um, and to be honest, like when I was there, when I was saying my words, and I was not thinking about anyone inside that room. I was just thinking of the Syrian people who are, are across the whole world, you know, when they're going to hear just someone of them, you know, like someone who has their voice, or someone who wants to say the things that they always wanted to say, but there was no way for us to say this. Because mm -hmm. even for us as, like, activists, we had to go to so many places. We, I think we didn't have so much hope in, in each place we've been to. And I'm talking about, on behalf of me and other people who I've met through this, like, three years of distributing the film and going out and talking, we always, like, had so much disappointment even before we go. But there was always, like, slightly line or, like, something of hope, you know, which always we might think like, maybe we're just, this is the time when something will change, you know, and there's this conflict always, which I'm not ever ready to explain because, you know, like you have this big responsibility that you should be there and you should say something, even if you know this is not going to change anything, but you're not going to leave it for, for them, you know, you're not going to leave this narrative to be written by Russia or the regime or anyone would be there who not representing the Syrian people. But for me, you know, like, again, I was just thinking of the Syrian people. I just wanted to say something I always felt, you know, when I was as an audience. And I think I was able to do this. I know this might not make anyone in that room happy, but I think that everyone as a Syrian would be totally, like, feeling something. It's a big weight for you to be able to carry as an individual, and I know you're not, you, you know, you're not going through this alone and there are people that are yeah. working with you. There's your husband, both of you have been very vocal, but it's still a lot of weight and a responsibility that, that you know, for a couple of years, you, your husband, your daughter, were some of the first people that the Western world really was able to kind of identify with what was happening in Syria. And I just wonder, you know, you are then tasked with trying to educate the, the entire world about what's happening in this conflict and what needs to be done and what, what, you know, millions of refugees think and care about and feel. How do you weigh that out in your mind of what you as Wad can do and what is much bigger than you as an individual? I mean, I think I have very like clear vision in my head that I, I don't expect any like result, you know, or I, 
I hope to be, of course, but I understand that this is very complicated and this is out of what I could even like handle as as individual. But also at the same time, I think I've never expected I would survive when I was there. And for me, the film was a very clear way for me to, to tell that. Mm. And everyone who watched the film can totally like understand why I was thinking or why I would think today like I, sh- I should not be here now. But also at the same time, I know that there's so many people didn't make it out. Mm-hmm. I have very, very, very personal and like close friends who they are buried in Syria. And I also, I, ha- I have so many friends who they survived mm-hmm. like physically, mm-hmm. mentally they are not. And I know also that at any second, this is, could be me. Um, I think the responsibility of just keep going, I wish I can let it go, you know? I wish I can just, like, turn my back and just be normal, like, in normal situation and just try to forget about this. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I won't, and I don't think I will be able to. Um, and just for me, like, to, be, to, to keep this memory happening in any possible way, whether it's with someone I sit down next to in the bus and for any conversation, I'm like, I'm from Syria mm. and I intended to, to say this, you know, I intended to bring, if they said like, oh, poor Syria, sorry, I was like, yeah, we have a very like evil president. Mm. I always just trying, you know, to like make the story out in any possible way or whether I was in the UN Security Council where I can really like reach millions of people. Um, I just feel like, you know, the only way for me to, recognize that I survived is like to tell the story and to make this out. And I know that so many people might not be able to do this, so I, I feel like I'm doing this not just about me. Um, and for me, more, more, than, more than anything else, I have two daughters. Mm. I want them to grow up and understand where we come from, why we left, and why we want to, to go back. Um, and I think that's like, you know, the, the essential thing I have seen in my, in my head. It's been six years since you left. Yeah. And you've, you've settled in the United Kingdom. You are start, restarting a new life. You have two daughters now. And uh, Sama, she's, she's how old now? She's six or seven, seven years old? Yeah. So she's, she's in school. Yeah. So there's a sense of normalcy about your life now that wasn't there, obviously, when you left. Yeah. Uh, and then you also talked about the idea that, you know, you and others who have left leave with a lot of trauma and a lot of these things that don't just settle down or go away. What does that look like in your life in order to try and create a sense of normalcy for your children as well, but for your own self? And yeah. What does that look like? So, I mean, it's very messy, I would say, mm-hmm. and very random mm-hmm. and trying to be very like... This, uh, like reasonable mom, you know, at sometimes where I have like, okay, I'm going to protect them now. Mm-hmm. And then next five minutes, I would have deeply with very like wrong conversation with them. Um, I mean, I'm trying my best, of course, to keep them safe and protected and just in this normal life here. But also I'm too much like on the other way as well. Mm-hmm. I want them to know everything, not just about Syria, about the world. I want them to understand that, like, maybe as individuals, we can't change the world, but we have responsibility in this. Um, They're coming today, 
uh, and they will see everything here, which we can they can recognize definitely. Um, but also, like I think you know, they carry this trauma, whether I like this or not. Mm. There is something in their maybe DNA, you know, in their head. They, something they can see in our face and our conversation at home between me and Hamza. Um, and I don't know what is right and what is wrong. Um, I hope I'm doing the same thing, the right thing for them. But I, I know it's not maybe, it will never be normal. Um, and I don't know, I, I understand, like I have some conflict now, you know, about what should I do to make things right for them because at the end it's not there. Um, like, um, what? Sorry. Their their sure. burden. Yeah, it's mm. it's not their burden. They they have to have like safe life. Um, I'm trying my best. I hope it's right. <laughs> yeah, because I imagine there's a there's a there's a you know there's there's a part of you that would want them to have a normal life and, yeah. and not be burdened by any of that stuff. And there's another part of you that wants them to understand where they've come from and and to hold on to that. Yeah, yeah, but it's. I don't think it's only about where they come from. Mm. So one very very short story. Like England was playing against Iran mm. in the World Cup, and Sama went with me to like two or three protests for Iran. Mm. Um, and the day when she came back from that match, she was like, um, "I I almost cried when uh, the sixth goal like was scored by England," and I was like. I, I didn't really notice, like, you know, what she would think about this. So I was like, like, why? She was like, because um, you remember this girl who was killed because she she didn't want to, like, wear a scarf? I thought if the Iran won, she, like, her family, her neighbors would be happy. So I wanted mm. Iran to win. I was like, <laughs> I was really, like, happy and in tears and, like, very complicated feeling. Yeah. I was like... Yeah, well, well, that's really good, but England's still your country, so you have to be happy as well. And she was like, very like, yeah, 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 I know it's, this is my country, but that's war, that's more important. Wow. And I think like, even now when I'm remembering this, I'm just like so, I don't know, proud, maybe a word, and so worried at the same time, because I mean, the protest where we went was like two, three months before the match. Mm. So it was not like something we talked about the day before or something. But it stayed with her, it had an impact on yeah. her. Yeah, and I feel like, again, proud and worried at the same time. <laughs> I heard you say something recently, uh, which, which caught me by surprise because I didn't know uh, that Wa'ad al-Khatib is not your real name. Yeah. What is that story about that? Where did that name come from? And, so, and why? when did you decide that you needed a, a different name? So Hamza al-Khatib is not his name as well. Mm. And... I can call you like 50 other friends who we call them until now something and they are not, that's not their names. Uh, I think this is came very early in the, in the protests uh, when we had to like co-coordinate with each other and be responsible for each other's safety. So we were like on Facebook or on Skype on groups when we can't um, like log in or be in the group with our real names because if anyone was arrested from this group and they were able to access that Facebook group or WhatsApp uh, group. There was no WhatsApp at that time, but mm -hmm. like, and there was other like ways of that and Skype groups. 
they will just be able to identify all the other people who are protesting. Mm. So one of the main like um, rules we had to make was like everyone should introduce themselves in different name. Um, and at that time, I I named myself like Sky River Free, mm. a river from revolution and free from freedom. Um, and everyone used to call me Sky, uh, which is Sama. That's mm -hmm. why Sama part of her name later. Uh, and Hamza at that time he. There was one boy who was killed. Uh, he was nine years old in, from Dara. His name was Hamza Al-Khatib. And he was a very like big symbol in, in the revolution. Um, and maybe one of the main reasons why Syria protests around across the other uh, cities. So Hamza tried that name on Facebook as like, you know, another name and it worked. Mm. So he stuck with the name. And, and then when we met later and we were in the hospital and when we get married, I choose like Wad as, so Wad is my first name, which is the real name. Mm. But I used to tell people it's not my name. So people definitely like, honestly, they kind of um, believe that, you mm. know, because I would never dare to put my real name in yeah. this. And then the surname got from, took it from Hamza. And actually everyone in the hospital, in that hospital, we were, just under Al Khatib name because it became like the hospital, like, like surname. Yeah. Yeah. So there was like another 15 people <laughs> from the same family, and across Syria, you know, from other cities, there yeah. was a lot of people who named themselves like from Al Khatib family wow. to remember Hamza Al Khatib. Yeah. That's beautiful because I mean, in the Arab world, you know, you have big family names and you have yeah. people from different countries, and so I wonder if this is the beginning of a new. Family. It's definitely you no. Know, like I remember in the early days, like first year or second year when my on my Facebook, you know, they gave you like 10 people, their birthday is today or like something. So two things happened. Mm. So many people became from uh, the family SY, which is coming from Syria. Mm. <laughs> and then other people, all the people changed their date of birth to be 15th of March, which is the beginning of the protest mm. in Syria. So I have like I don't know, like 13,000 people birthday on 15th of March, and none of them is really. <laughs> a lot of birthday parties to attend. So a lot of things changed after the revolution. And I think even now, like, I don't use even Hamza's real name mm. at home. You know, I call him Hamza until now. Mm. And it's just something, I think, give us so much, like, memory, good memory about yeah. how things changed and how things we wanted to be, like, now. I wonder if that change of name in some way signifies a change of identity yeah. for you before and after the... No, definitely, yes. And I think it's a, it's a whole feeling my generation has, or like every generation from Syria who was like linking their life to 2011. Uh, yeah, it's definitely like changed a lot of... I mean, the main thing, I think, our belonging to Syria and our longing to Syria, because I think before 2011, I've never felt I'm Syrian. Mm -hmm. I, that doesn't mean anything for me. Like, mm -hmm. I can just leave to any country and start my life over there, um, and I would never even want to go back, or mm -hmm. wish to go back. Um, and the revolution made, like, this very different. Let's talk about this exhibit, this, this area that we're standing in right now. Can you describe to us what it is and, and what all of the different items that are filling it and all their stories. So we're sitting in the middle of the first floor where uh, we're surrounded by memories and stories of people who 
are still alive and some of them still alive. Um, we have some personal items we were able to get out with us. Uh, part of my, like, just personal things like my hat, which I used to wear the whole years of Aleppo. Uh, my camera, which I filmed uh, most of for summer with. Um, and I turned it off the day when we left. Mm. Never turned it on again. Never cleaned it. And I just wanted to stay as it was. Uh, my wedding flowers, um, the ones that... Which featured in the film? Yes, yeah. and which I really hate at that time because <laughs> it's not like uh, natural flowers, you know? Mm. It's just like something my cousin made with her own hands mm. for her wedding. And then I was able to get that after and I did my own like touch on that. Mm. Um, and at that time I was like, I really want natural flowers. It was really hard to get in Aleppo. Mm. Um, and then I, I'm thinking of this now as the best thing I've ever had because if I have any like natural flower, you know, it won't be stay for for a long time. Mm. And this is last forever now. So I have really good thing now. <laughs> Uh, we have one corner where we have um, like art uh, where Salem, uh, who was our, our neighbor and our friend from Aleppo, um, he used to uh, paint and draw um, things on the walls of Aleppo. Um, part of that was really great and good, uh, just uh, fun mm. work to do and to give people more hope and um, joy and others was to deliver messages to the people outside of Aleppo. Um, so we decided that each year we're going to do one uh, wall, uh, same one he did before in Aleppo. He's going to do it as a live art while the exhibition is happening. Uh, he's very fast. He finished that in, in the first day. <laughs> wow, that's really impressive. Um, and uh, then we have some personal items for Afra, my friend uh, who was a teacher in a school in Aleppo. Uh, she has the keys of the school mm -hmm. and the stamp, which she used to, to use for the kids' certificate. Some pictures of the, that school and what activity they were doing with the kids. Mm -hmm. um, she has also some soil she got from uh, the park. Uh, who turned later to be like a um, cemetery. Mm. Um, and there's uh, six pictures of uh, young people, uh, friends who died before we leave and their um, graves still until now there. Mm. There's also a picture of the uh, park from a uh, high place. Um, then we have some personal items of Hamza, my husband, uh, the glasses that he used to wear in Aleppo, which was broken, and he had to use it anyway because there was no uh, place in, in, in the last days of Aleppo to even to fix it, and he couldn't just live without it because mm. he can't really see. Uh, he has the telescope, uh, not telescope, the uh, stethoscope, uh, st stethoscope yeah. uh, which uh, he got from a doctor uh, early in 2012, and he still uh, he used that for a long time, and he left it with doctors inside Syria after we left Aleppo um, in the new hospital when they started that. And then um, he got it back from, from one of the doctors saying that there's not really need for this now, and I think you would love to have it. 
the, the thing that strikes me about a lot of these items is that they're very ordinary items. Yeah. They're the kind of items that you'd have in your house and you wouldn't, you would never think twice about. Yeah, you will throw it definitely, yeah. like at some point, yeah. <laughs> um, but then what kind of meanings do these items take after you've gone through a process of displacement, after you've been through uh, an experience, been through war, do they take on a different meaning? I think it's really hard to explain this because... Um, they are the only home we have now. Um, you know, they, we, we, we can't go back. We can't see anything we used to see. We can't even be in the streets when we used to grow up. Um, we don't have homes, like, or we had, but we can't even get there. So I think that's for us what remains mm-hmm. of Syria. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, like, sometimes you think about stuff... I don't know why I got this, or I don't know how bad or good this means to me, but then when you have nothing else, you know, it became very valuable. Um, There are some items from people who maybe they didn't feel it's important, you know, or when the moment they hold on into this, they thought, like, this is everything I own now. And in both ways, you know, after you lose your country, after you lose your future and your dreams and your home, you think like, this is at least important for me. Mm. But then when you share it with people and you feel how people can connect to this, how much they can look at around them and feel like, okay, now I can look at my life and see how important is everything maybe. There are uh, an estimated you know, more than 13 million Syrians that have been displaced yeah. by the war, internally and externally, more than six and a half million that have been displaced externally, stories such as yours, such as the, your friends, your family. And it has been a number of years now since you've been out of Syria. And I wonder what the future looks like for these millions of people that have had to uproot their lives and go elsewhere and think about starting over what does their life look like now it's really like depends on each one ability you know to integrate in the new community and try to open up and I think that's a big responsibility and sometimes even a big ask for so many people Mm -hmm. Um, it's so hard because at some point you want to keep going and you want to keep going not just about being able like to live and eat and drink. It's just to have your own community and your life, your future. Um, and you start to create memories in these places. And this has became like something really like important and valuable as well. But also you don't want to forget and you want to like look back at what happened and f- see that something changed. Um, I think it's this is very, very like a conflict would be in everyone like head. Um, we have to to wake up every day and focus on this like daily life here, um, and look back at Syria and see like people at least they are not suffering anymore, which mm. is not the situation now, unfortunately. I want to end with you this conversation on this idea of hope. Yeah, uh, and it was something that we spoke about three years ago when we spoke, and. In your film, you explain that the reason that you named your first daughter Sema 
was because the sky has a connotation of hope. And I want to ask you, all of these years on, where you are standing today, with you, your family, and the Syrians that are in your position, what does hope look like for you in the future? The hope is definitely for me to be able to go back to my home. Um, I mean, it's been six years, and I still maybe see this every single day. Um, I want to go back. I want to be able to go back. I want to d- to choose if I want to go back or not. Um, I don't want to have don't I don't want to have any fears, you know, from people around me, from uh, my country. And I think what my hope is mainly is like with justice. I want to see justice. I want to have justice. I want to be part of that process. Um, and I really hope like. I don't know when this would happen, but I see this happening. And if I couldn't see that, at least I want my daughters to see that. But you believe it will happen one day? I do believe. That's why I'm still trying to do something here. Wow, Abdel Khatib, thank you very much for your time today. It's been thank a pleasure. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Big Picture is produced and presented by me, Mohammed Hassan, with editing from Hossam Sarhan and Anas Ale. A big thank you to P21 Gallery for hosting our conversation and of course, to Wa'ad al-Khatib. This has been a Middle East Eye podcast. You can also find this interview on video on the Middle East Eye YouTube channel, where you can access all of our great news and culture content. Until next time, salam.